you're never going to reach your full potential as a person, as a human being, by just doing something for stability and settling. You're going to reach your full potential when you follow your passion, because that passion will drive you much further and much higher than if you had not done that. And eventually you're going to get good enough that somebody somewhere is going to. You're listening to the Gangstar Creative Podcast, where we talk and share real strategies, real tactics, and real stories from me and my badass guests to help Gangstar creatives and artists like you thrive in both your business and life. And I'm your host, Ivana. I'm an artist, creative entrepreneur, speaker, and best-selling author. Are you ready to annihilate the status quo of the starving artist? If so, let's get it. What up, Gangstars? It's your girl, Ivana, and this week's Gangstar Creative is Michael Buffington, aka Drawaholic1124, and he was born and raised in the historic Mission District of San Francisco, California. He's been a professional concept artist doing pre-production artwork and design for over 18 years in the video game and entertainment industry. While Michael has worked on many projects in his career, his most notable gig was working as a designer on Season 3 of Clone Wars for Lucasfilm Animation. For the past 17 years, he's also taught at the college level, and nine years ago, he accepted a full-time job as a college professor and department head at a prominent university in the Bay Area. As a master curriculum designer, Michael went on to build the number one program for concept art in the U.S. from the ground up, both BFA and MFA, and it was also ranked number three in the whole world in 2019. He's the founder of Drawaholics Anonymous, an international drawing community with hundreds of members. And most recently, he founded the Grind Before Glory, an art fundamental skill building program designed to help young artists develop their foundational skills before they get to college. You know, I haven't had a concept artist on the show yet, so I'm super stoked to have you hear his story and have him share some gold nuggets with you all. You know, it's actually really cool because I met him on TikTok and he does some really cool content on there and I just had to have him on. So let's go ahead and just dive right into the episode. All right, Gangstars, another week, another Gangstar. I have Michael Buffington in the house. And what's cool is that we actually connected on TikTok. Um, And so I'm excited to learn more about him and his journey and have him share some awesome gold nuggets with you guys. Michael, thanks for joining me. Yo, what's up, Devonna? It is a pleasure to be on your podcast today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Of course. So as always, I like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Michael? Take us on a journey of where you started and where you are today. Uh, absolutely. Um, my name is Michael Buffington Jr. Um, I am born and raised in San Francisco, California. I grew up in the Mission District, which formerly was a very rough uh, and tumble neighborhood. Um, it has now since been very gentrified, but back in the days when I was growing up, it was the hood. Um, and growing up in San Francisco, um, I had very young parents. My, my mother, she was 18 years old when she had me and my father was 20. So they were a little rough around the edges. My mother, she's from Central America, um, a little country called Nicaragua and my father's African-American. And, um, you know, I, I grew up kind of like any other kid, you know, in the hood with very young parents. We had a lot of you know, family of origin issues, a lot of difficult things that I had gone through. And, you know, my father was a great guy. He was an amazing, you know, happy-go-lucky guy. Everybody loved him and he was fantastic as long as he was sober, but he had a difficult time with substance abuse issues, which 
which was very sad because he was very talented and very intelligent. In fact, later on in life, he became a gourmet chef because he was so talented. I'm talking cooked in France the whole night. Oh, wow. But, um, but he struggled with substance abuse issues. And so that kind of colored my childhood. And I was very unhappy for a very long time and just trying to survive. And that being in a state of kind of constant misery, you know, and, and just trying to survive kind of made me rethink the way I approached life. And so instead of just looking for stability, I was looking for something to make me happy. And that's where I started to discover the things that I really liked, which were art and music. Wow. Okay. So it seems like you got a little bit of your creative side from your dad. Was your mom a creative too in any light or? You know, it's, it's, it's funny because um, it kind of runs on both sides of my family. Like my father, he was actually a funk musician back in the 70s and 80s, hence the substance abuse issues, definitely a cliche, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but he was, I was surrounded by music from the time that I was born. Um, and mm. that's why today, even today, I'm a professional musician um, and I produce for a, a number of artists as well as produce my own music. So that definitely was something that was in my veins from the very beginning. Um, and I'm definitely a creative on that end of it. But how I got into drawing was actually, um, according to legend, <laughs> my, my mother really was interested in things like playing the piano in art and somehow she saw in a magazine somehow you could order um, this kit and do these courses by mail and so she ordered this drawing kit and she wanted to be an artist now my my grandmother um was very artistic on well, my mother's mother um but you know in in a central american third world country like nicaragua um, being an artist wasn't a real profession being a musician mm -hmm. wasn't a real profession. A real profession was like being a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. Otherwise, you were just kind of a working stiff, but definitely art, music, things like that. That was something that you did when you were a child. And when you got old, you moved on from that and you got a quote unquote real job. So she wasn't really supported by my grandfather in pursuing art as a career or anything like that. But she always kind of had it in her. And when I was about four years old, I remember one day she pulled out her drawing kit and it was a trip because I had never seen anything like this. And she pulled it out and she said, let me show you how to draw a gorilla. And she showed me how to draw a gorilla. <laughs> and that was it. I was four years old. I saw her draw a gorilla. I don't even remember how good it came out. I just remember being fascinated that you could actually take a pencil, put it to paper and make an image. And, mm. and from that point forward, I was absolutely hopelessly addicted to drawing. Wow. How old were you then? What'd you say? What age did you say? Four years old. <laughs> four. Wow. That's crazy. So fast forward, you're a concept artist and you've done a lot of work in like the entertainment industry, video game industry. How did you end up in doing that type of artwork and drawing? And how does one get into that industry? Well, well, let me back up a little bit because I didn't intend on getting into that industry per se. Mm. Like, I, I didn't go into school with the intention of being a concept artist because I really didn't even know what a concept artist was. Actually, it was sort of a new field when I was getting into it. And, um, you know, really what happened was, you know, I, I enjoyed 
drawing. I enjoyed creating. I was definitely a creative. Um, while in school, I could memorize information. I have a photographic memory, so rote memorization was not difficult for me. So I was incredibly unstimulated by school. Um, things like math, um, anything like that was very boring for me. And so I often didn't do well in those classes, not because I, I wasn't intelligent, but simply because I just wasn't interested. Had, had I been in a school that, that really value, validated the way that my mind worked, um, I probably would have excelled, which is what happened when I got to college later on, where I could be in an art-specific college. But during grade school, middle school, high school, I was just hanging on. And in fact, um, I, did, I did really poorly in most of my classes. I barely graduated from high school, but I always ended up in the art room and uh, a woman by the name of Karen Joyce, Miss Joyce, she loved me so much that she would turn a blind eye to me cutting class and going into, <laughs> into her art room because she knew that at least I was doing something positive. I wasn't cutting class and running the streets, um, which I did occasionally, but for the most part, I was doing something positive. And so she allowed me to do that. And she gave me that grace. And, and I realized, like I said, you know, growing up in a home where you had a lot of family of origin issues and a lot of childhood trauma and, and witnessed a lot of trauma and violence and, mm -hmm. and things like that, I just wanted to be happy. And so those were the things that I loved to do. And what really, what really happened for me was I got a job um, at UPS during the Christmas rush when I was 17 years old. Ooh, that sounds yeah. stressful. Oh man, let me tell you <laughs> Especially something. Especially as a kid. <laughs> that was the single worst job experience that I had ever had in my life. Um, I got the job. And they initially told me I was going to work four hours. It was going to be part-time and I was going to work from four to eight in the morning. And I said, okay, cool. So I signed up for a bunch of morning classes. I figured, you know, I'll work from four to eight. Classes will start at 930 at City College. And then, um, you know, I'll do, I'll do my thing and I'll be fine. And a few weeks into the, into the uh, season, they said, hey, we need you to come in at two. And I said, hey, man you know, that's a little early, you know, I have classes in the morning. And they said, well, that's what we need. And I'm like, all right. So I started coming at two in the morning. And then before you know it, that got moved up to, to midnight. And, and before you know it, I was coming in at 11 p.m., working all the way till 8 a.m. the next day. So essentially a graveyard shift, unloading trucks for the entire Christmas rush. I had idiot managers screaming at me constantly. I mean, to the point where one dude called me out my name so many times, I got out the truck and I said, call me out my name one more time, one more <laughs> time and watch what I do. Like, it was yeah. like that, you know? And, and um, you know, I got pulled, pulled, pulled aside by supervisors and, and, and I was like, nah, dude, I'm about to wear a dude out. Like, I'm tired of him calling me out my name. And, um, and so I went through that whole thing, got my last check, and never showed up again. Two days later, <laughs> um, one of the managers who, who I did actually like, his name was Eric, he called me up and he said, hey, hey, Mike, uh, where you been at? <laughs> I said, home. And he said, uh, look, man, I want to hire you full time. You know, you're a great worker. You've been, you know, fast. You've been doing a great job. I said, look, bro. I said, I like you. E. I said, you're a good dude. I said, but don't ever call me again, homie. I'm never coming back there. Do you understand? I'm asleep when it's dark. <laughs> and, and um and so my man was like okay and and that was it and and what that taught me was very valuable and it taught me 
something about myself. And that was that I am not wired to do something that I do not love, period. Mm. Okay. Now, there are a lot of people who will get up every day and go to UPS for 30 years and then retire and have their little pension and whatever little benefits they have. I'm not that dude. Like I got to get up and I got to be passionate about it because I spent my childhood being unhappy, being miserable, suffering through all these different um, traumas that children should never have to deal with. And so as an adult, why would I put myself through something that made me miserable? That's freaking stupid. So I said, nah, man, I got to figure out what I enjoy. And it definitely wasn't that. And I had that experience. So I was like, I'm not doing that to myself. I'm not going to, you know, I, I understood why a lot of people came home, drank and beat their wives and children. Not that it was right, but I understood because those dudes were miserable all day long. So they yeah. would come home, drink themselves into a stupor and then abuse their families. And I just wasn't going to go that route. I was going to be a better man, a better person and have a better life. And so <clears throat> what I realized was that I had to figure out what made me happy. And I had a lot of people that were well-meaning, well-meaning um, family members, especially on the Latin side of my family, because, you know, they're very, have a traditional mindset. They have a certain sort of idea. In fact, I had a, an, a, an older cousin say, you know, you get the questions around junior, senior year, what are you going to do? And you have to start thinking about what you're going to be in college and what you're going to do for your life and this and that. And I said, um, well, I want to be an artist and a musician. And he looked at me, paused, and he looked at me and he goes, well, that's not realistic. And I was like, what? what do you mean not realistic I said do you think Tupac raps for free you know and what about all these comic books and and cartoons and things that I read do you think that those people draw that stuff for free like clearly they're getting paid I just need to figure out how they're doing it and he was just like yeah yeah but that's not for you and I was like why not you know and you know what I realized is that most of those people who were telling me that I needed stability and that I needed to to think about being able to support a family and things like that, and that that wasn't the way, I make more money than those people now. And I do what I love. You see what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you know, uh, Will Smith, bless his heart, he's going through some things right now, but he says something that I, I love. He said something to the effect of um, taking the safe road or it's taking the safe route is the most commonly traveled road to mediocrity. Yeah. Um, and, and I wasn't interested in being regular. I wasn't interested in being average, in being normal. I wasn't interested in being that nine to five dude that got up every day, sat in some stupid little cubicle under fluorescent lights and just sat there and ate crap for my boss all day so I can get a little check. Um, that just wasn't me. And so, you know, I knew that I was born to do something greater um, than, than most people. I was born to do something exceptional. And if I was going to do that, that was going to require me taking some sort of risk. Because when I looked out there and I looked at people who were great, it was because there was some sort of risk involved in, in their pursuits of their passions that were far greater than what most people are willing to take. You know, you have to risk more than others think is wise sometimes in order to accomplish great things. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. And, um, and you know, if, if I could potentially do what I love for a living, um, it's, it's worth the risk. You know, my father, who was a big time dreamer, all for, for all his problems and all the difficulties that he experienced in life, 
Um, he was a big time dreamer. And he used to always say, you know, if you do what you love for a living, you'll never work a day in your life. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. And so, you know, after that experience um, in UPS, I didn't actually make my way directly to art school. I actually ended up in a music engineering program. And so um, I really learned the music side of things. And technically, I mean, today, like I mix and master all my own stuff. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty, pretty high level um, musician technically and, and, and otherwise. And, um, but uh, after that was done, I had another experience. I ended up at a, a record company, I'm sorry, uh, an engineering studio in, in South Salido called The Plant. And oddly enough, while I was there waiting for my interview to, to do a, um, what, what was it, an internship or whatever it was, um, couldn't be basically like a gopher is, is what it was. I can't remember what the name. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so while I was there waiting, there was this rock music coming out of one of the studios down the hall. The music stops. This group of guys, this band comes out and they start barking orders at the at the intern. Um, one guy was complaining about he got the wrong Doritos last time. And I was kind of sitting there rolling my eyes like these dudes, you know, and mm -hmm. um, they turned to me and they looked at me. And one of the guys looked familiar. He had these bug eyes. And, and there was another guy. He, 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 I, I said, I've seen that guy before. And I, maybe this is a famous band. And the guy goes, hey, what's up, man? And I said, what's up? And he said, did you hear that? And I said, yeah, that's cool. And he was like, okay, right on. Thank you. And, and so he, they walked down. <laughs> they go back in the room. I mean, I just, I mean, I didn't really mean to shine dude on, but I was just like, yeah, you did your thing, whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, they walk in the room. And uh, the intern leans over the desk to see if they were gone. And he turns to me and he goes, dude, do you know who that was? And I was like, nah, who was that? He goes, that was Metallica, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so I, I kind of blew off Metallica. But, um, but I sat in, in the interview um, with the studio manager and she says something to me that I didn't like. She said, I think of interns like a good golden retriever. They don't ask Yikes. questions and they just do what you say. And I said, well, <laughs> as a black man, hearing that wow. from a white woman that didn't mm -hmm. sit well with me, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, I, and I had already had some experiences with white folks not treating me well because of the color of my skin. I was like, oh, hell no, you know? And mm -hmm. so I left and you know, I talked to to one of the guys who had who had actually hooked me up with the interview, and I said, "Look, bro, I'm sorry, but I can't take that because this is what she said that didn't sit well with me." And he was like, "Well, you know," he tried to rationalize it with me, but you just he, he just said the wrong she said the wrong words to me. Yeah, I was looking to be happy. I wasn't looking to be treated by like Kunta Kinte. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so from there, I um, I said, "Okay, what next?" And I was talking to my father. I was like, man, you know, I really don't know what to do. Um, and my father said, hey, why don't you go check out that art school downtown? And I was like, huh. I kind of kicked it around in my head. And I was talking to my mother one day. And um, she's seen that I was feeling, looking a little down, you know, and discouraged. And she was like, what's up? You know, and, and I said, you know, mom, I, I just don't want to be a failure at life. I want to be a better man. I want to be able to support my family. I want to be able to do the things that I love. 
And she looked at me and she says one of the most poignant things that somebody could ever say to, to, to somebody. And it really had an impact on me. She said, you can only be a failure at life if you're not happy. And mm. with that, I, I felt like I had, um, with that, I felt like I had the green light to, um, to, to go forward in doing what I yeah. want. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the art school downtown. I walked in there and um, I looked at the guy at the front desk and I was like, you know, fresh off the streets. I'm talking fresh off the streets. And and when I say when I would say I was in the streets, I was in the traffic. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I was I was out there on the block doing everything that people do on the block. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> we didn't have a whole lot of money um and but but I was suited and booted and and I think you know how and um and I I you know um on multiple occasions had people literally trying to kill me I've been shot at <laughs> my cousin got shot right in front of me um yeah. I was I was I out it. there yeah I was out there like that you see what I'm saying so yeah. I am fresh off the streets pants a little bit too low hat turned to the <laughs> side you know I was that dude right yeah and um I walked into the college and I said yo I want to go here how do I do it <laughs> <laughs> there's so much innocence in that you know and I'm sure well I don't know how the person took that but I know if it were me I would have just like kind of chuckled but I would have been proud of the fact that this person came in and was interested yeah. in learning how to, you know, join the school. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> it, was, it was, and that's exactly what he did. He just kind of laughed at me, but like in a, not in a mean way, but like, yeah, he was entertained by me, you know? <laughs> and um, so he points me up to the third floor. And so I was like, cool. And so I walk up there and I walk into this admissions office and this very nice lady sits me down and she was like, so what do you want to do? And I, so I repeat, I was like, I, I just want to go here. Like, like, how do I do it? And she was like, um, well, there's a lot of different things that you can do. And what are you interested in? And I said, well, I want to get paid to draw. And she was like, oh, isn't that cute? You know? And so <laughs> she started to go down like the list of different things. And um, she got to illustration and it sounded like what I wanted to do. And I said, so, so wait a minute. So in illustration, does that mean you just draw all the time and, and then you'll become a professional artist and get paid to draw like comic books or whatever? And she was like, well, yeah. And I said, cool, sign me up. And, and that's how I ended up in art school. Um, and, and I had a pretty profound experience, but one of my buddies, his name is Garrett. Um, first, first semester, he had pulled out this magazine and showed me how um, they were making a new Star Wars trilogy. This was the, um, the prequel trilogy. And this is back in 97. And he said, yo, man, check this out, dude. They're making a new Star Wars. I was like, what? Because I was a Star Wars fanatic. Like Luke Skywalker and Bruce Lee were like my childhood heroes, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, um, so when I seen that, I said, oh, I said, okay, they're making a new Star Wars. And then I found out that they have these people called concept artists that design the spaceships, the characters, the backgrounds, all those things for the movie. And I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. Mm. And so that's how I figured out what a concept artist was. 
Ah, I love that. It's kind of like too, like with me growing up, I didn't know what graphic design was, Mm -hmm. but I was like doing graph design without even knowing it. And the only way I found out was through like, once I got to high school, I heard of the term when I joined a program. So it's pretty cool that this was something that you never knew. And then you came to this program and it was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. This is it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, I just, I just knew that I I wanted to draw and paint and I, and I was a star Wars fanatic. Like I remember being a kid and seeing uh, return of the Jedi in the movie theater, like six times, (laughs) you know? Oh, wow. So yeah, this is like definitely your calling without you knowing that this was your calling. (laughs) For sure. For sure. Because it combined all these things that I loved. I mean, like I said, it was for, for me as a kid, it was, it was, uh, uh, Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, um, Bruce Lee and Luke Skywalker. Those were my childhood heroes. And, um, and to be able to just the possibility of being able to, you know, work, you know, at a place like Lucasfilm, um, on Star Wars properties, movies or whatever was just very exciting to me. So I began pushing towards that goal. So how did this one, how did you even get that opportunity? So obviously, you know, a lot of times artists, they go into art programs, art schools, get their art degrees, but there's not a lot of education around where to take their, how to use their degree, so to speak, or how to make money or create a career around it. So how did you, you know, get into that career field and what advice would you give to those listening that may be interested in following the same path? Well, you know, um, the first thing that I had, that I did was, um, you know, I walked into school and I realized that I was at a disadvantage immediately because I was surrounded by people who were coming from more privileged situations, who were coming from affluence, who had grown up with, um, art tutors and art lessons and things like this. And I didn't have any of that. I had my high school art classes and Miss Joyce, and that was it. That was my only art education that I had ever experienced. So I was very behind everybody else in terms of skill. Hey, Gangstar, sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this episode so far, stop what you're doing right now and share this podcast with your friends on social media or text it to a friend in your contacts. If you're a true Gangstar and want to uplift and empower other creatives like I know you do, you're gonna wanna take a few seconds to do this now. Go ahead and pick your phone back up or click that browser tab that you're playing this episode in, hit that pause button and share it now. Hello, what are you waiting for? All right. Thank you for doing that. Now let's get back to the show. So the first thing that I realized is that I had to quit plan and I had to become very serious about what I was doing or find something else to do. Um, But, you know, me coming from the streets, you know, I I had that sort of like never say die, never give up, you know, survivalist attitude, because that's the attitude that you had to have when you were in the streets. Right. Right. You, You couldn't give up because, you know, if you're in a fight, and you give up, that could mean death, like literally, you know, and I've, I've been in situations where I'm fighting like three dudes at once. And, you know, I, could, I couldn't just say, all right, I'm done, time out. It was like, nah, you were gonna get stomped out. So you just had to keep swinging, you know, until, until the fight was over. And, um, and so I took that mentality into that situation. And I said, you know what? I said to myself, I am going to do this or I'm going to die trying. And, um, and from that point forward, I began to grind 
and really focus on my fundamentals. Now, one of the things that the mistakes that people make is they see, you see, back in the days, um, we didn't understand what concept artists were. We were being trained to be illustrators, fine artists, painters, um, you know, editorial illustrators, things like that, because a lot of our teachers had come from that era. Um, and concept art was a very new thing. So they didn't really have a program for concept artists. Um, but I but I believe that if I just got my fundamental skills, my drawing and painting skills up to a very high level, that that would eventually translate into um, a, a job, you know, in the industry that I wanted to get into. And so I kind of carved my own path in a lot of ways, which is very, I do this often, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I kind of carved my own path, but I realized that I needed to focus on the fundamentals. And I'm very glad that I did because that is what separates me from the pack even today. A lot of people, you know, we live in an on-demand society, right? Everything's on mm -hmm. demand. You know, you want you want food, you don't even have to get up. You just hit a couple buttons on your phone and in 30, 40 minutes, food arrives at your door. You want to watch a show, you just pick up the remote control and you go into your on-demand and you watch a show that you want. You watch a movie, everything's at the tip of your fingers. Everybody walks around with the computer in their pockets. Um, you know, when I was a kid, we had to get up, we didn't, you know, go to the library and we had to uh, read encyclopedias to do book reports. You don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything is on demand and instant. And so people... you just unlocked a memory. I forgot that we did that. That's hilarious. <laughs> did you have Did you have to go to do book reports at the library too? <laughs> yeah. Well, using an encyclopedia, that's what got me. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, no doubt, man. I mean, those those were the days, bro. That's funny. That's when you actually had to read stuff and open books. It was a trip. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, a lot of people expect um, building skill in art and having a career in art to be the same way. And what they, ha what they have to realize is that this is one of those things where um, you have to learn before you earn. Like you have to build your skill before you can get that position you know a lot of people like the idea of being a concept artist but they're not willing to put in the work that it takes to mm. be a concept artist and once they realize once they get into the program and they realize oh oh wait I actually have to grind I actually have to be focused I actually have to work and it's not something that's going to come in six months a year two years maybe even three years it might take four or five maybe even six years just to get to the level that I'm trying to get to nah I'm good you know, and they'll walk away from it and do something else. Um, and it's because they're not willing to put that work in because they approach art with the wrong mindset, at least for what, for being a professional concept artist, you can't treat art like a hobby. You have to treat it like a lifestyle. You have to eat, breathe and sleep it. And so that's what I did. And that's how I was able to build my skill up to a professional level. When I got into school, I was, I would say probably 80% of the people that I, that I was around were better than me. When I graduated from school in 2003, there were maybe three people in the end, two people in the entire school who I would consider better draftsmen than me. I graduated at the top of my class. And so mm -hmm. I was able to then take those skills after I built a portfolio um, that showed that I could do concept art at a professional level. And then I was able to start getting jobs in video games and films and things like that. Mm, wow, that's really cool. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people who would, you know, dream of working 
on their favorite animation films and working in the entertainment industry and the gaming industry and things like that. From your experience, is there anything in particular that they look for in a portfolio or in an artist? Um, I know it was probably a lot different now than it was when you got into the game, but any piece of wisdom or advice that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the first thing you have to have is you have to have fundamental skill. You have to be able to have a high level of draftsmanship. In other words, you have to be able to draw at a very high level. You have to be able to paint at a very high level. You have to understand things like composition and compositional principles. You have to understand things like um, color and light. And being a concept artist is very different from being an illustrator. It's very different from being a fine artist. You have to know a little bit about a lot of things. Um, you have to understand not only um, the science of light, how light works in terms of physics and things like that. You have to understand the psychology behind color and light and value and things like that. You have to understand, we all have four tools um, as concept artists because we are essentially professional visual problem solvers, meaning somebody comes to you, whether that's a director or a writer or whomever, and they have a problem. The problem is, is that they have this vision, this, this brief, this write-up for an asset, whether that's a character or a prop or an environment, and they need the aesthetics. They need to bring it to life visually. So what we do is we take the four tools, line, shape, color, and value, and we take those four tools and put them together in various combinations to try and solve that visual problem. And so it requires a mastery over those four tools, line, shape, color, and value. And along with that comes having an understanding of the science behind these things, understanding Gestalt principles, um, which is, you know, back in the 1920s, a bunch of German scientists got together and they began to study how human beings reacted to certain visual stimuli. And what they realized was that it didn't matter your age, your race, um, your gender, your culture, um, all human beings had the same reactions, the same types of reactions to certain visual stimuli. And so they were able to take that and say, okay, this type of line will evoke this sort of feeling. This type of line will evoke this sort of feeling, this color will evoke this feeling. So there's there's a difference between the way that react to we react to primary colors versus secondary colors. There's a difference um, in the way that we react to um, saturated colors versus desaturated colors. Um, uh, for example, when I look at your work, I think your work is so gorgeous. Like your color palette is beautiful. You have a lot of Thank these, you. yeah, a lot of these very. Um, it's not super saturated. Um, but you do splash a little saturated color in there periodically, but you have these beautiful sort of um, tinted um, purples and blues, and there's, there's these nice kind of pastel vibes, which creates a very calming effect on the viewer, right? That's why these people pay you to come and do these beautiful murals in their office, because in their office space, they want to be surrounded by things that help them feel calm in the stressors of whatever they're doing professionally. And so, <clears throat> so that's why as an artist, see, I, I don't know how, how much you understand that on a technical level, but you inherently have an understanding of how to create that vibe. 
you know mm -hmm. so understanding that kind of stuff is what it takes to become a concept artist you have to know a little bit about architecture you have to know a little bit about industrial design transportation design prop design ergonomics um anatomy i mean when i talk anatomy with doctors they think i'm in the medical field because <laughs> you know, I, I, the last time i went to the doctor I was explaining some pain that I was having in, in, in my back. And he goes, can you, can you tell me around where you're having it? And I said, oh yeah, it's definitely between my third and fourth thoracic vertebrae. And he goes, are you a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm an artist. And then he laughed because he understood because I know, I know anatomy. So I guess yeah. what, what I'm saying is, is before you can become a professional concept artist, you have to have an understanding of a wide uh, array of things. And that's something that's built up over time. It's not gonna happen overnight. The second thing that you need is you need um, not only a portfolio that exhibits that, but a portfolio that exhibits um, the ability to do certain things within a production pipeline. And what that means is that if somebody sticks you in a production pipeline, in a video game company, in a film, you can produce the artwork necessary for the next person in the pipeline to do their job. So as a concept artist, you come first and then the 3D modeler comes after you. So a 3D modeler has to be able to take your artwork and do a three-dimensional uh, model of that in a program like Maya or ZBrush or Mudbox or Moto um, or Blender or whatever. And, um, and they need, be, need to be able to build that so that that asset can then be rigged and put into the game or film or whatever. And so as a concept artist, you need to do certain things. You need to be able to do orthographic drawings, turnarounds. You need to be able to do um, show the asset in different states. Like it, it just basically, you're trying to deliver information so the 3D modeler can look at that and say, okay, I see what's going on here. And they could model it according to your drawings. So you have to exhibit the ability to do all of those things in your portfolio. And if you show that high level of skill, that uh, understanding, you know, a little bit of understanding about a lot of things, if you show that you are a professional visual problem solver and that you can deliver information up the pipeline to the 3D modeler, then you have a very high chance of getting a job in the industry. Mm. How long does it take for a concept artist who's hired for a specific project, like a typical project? Obviously everything is different, but how long does that actually take? And is it like a, a ton of drawings or is it just per project basis? Um, is it longer than what people think versus people kind of go in and you're just like constantly creating based off of whatever the brief is? Yeah, I mean, you know, being a concept artist is definitely a very involved, it's a very cerebral sort of process. Um, it's not something where you just kind of go in there and do a couple drawings and people are like, oh my gosh, Picasso, I like it, you know? Like, <laughs> it's definitely not like that. It's a, it's, a, it's a conversation. You go in there and the first thing that you do is you sort of, um, you have like, a, like a, a kickoff meeting of some sort where you sit down, they introduce the asset to you. They say, here's what we're thinking. Here's what we had in our minds. What do you think? And you give your input and they say, okay, well, let's do that. And then let's do some of this. And then you get your marching orders and then you go back to your desk and then you sit down and you begin to try and bring this thing to life. And it requires steps. It's not just something that happens in one or two drawings. It's really, you. first thing you do is research. And you have a lot of people that think that, you know, if people use reference, you're not a real artist and that's dumb, 
right? Um, professional <laughs> concept artists, the first thing they do is go back and research the hell out of whatever asset they're designing mm -hmm. to try and come up with as much information as they possibly can because they, they will be able to produce better informed designs. And so after doing their research, then they start the preliminary phase. And that's where you do iterations. So you are doing tons of thumbnails, tons of iterations, tons of ideas. And, and basically what you want to do is you want to deliver uh, a whole litany of just choices um, for your director, art director, whomever is, is supervising that particular project or asset to be able to look at. So then you'll, what you'll, what'll happen is you'll go into like a dailies meeting at some point, whether that's the next day or a couple of days, they usually give you like um, maybe one or two days to iterate on an idea, um, sometimes three, but it's not much. And um, you'll spend a lot of time just banging out different sort of ideas. You'll get in there and they'll kind of look at it and they'll, they'll say, okay, I like this, but I, I like that over here. And I like the hairstyle from this one and like the boots from that. And you'll kind of hodgepodge it together based on ideas. And um, I, ironically, the, the drawing that you like the most is typically the one that they'll never choose. And the one that you like <laughs> is typically the one that they will choose. Um, so you have to kind of resign to that fact sometimes. And, and there has been times where I have been known to take a drawing that I really like that's gotten rejected. And when I did my second round of iterations, slide it back into the pile. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but typically that's, you know, you do the iterations and once you do the iterations then, and it's agreed upon, um, like, you know, the, the, the final sort of look of that asset is agreed upon. At that point, you go in and you start to do the cleanup and you get the tight line down and maybe some flat color. Then they approve that. And then from that point, you go to your render and then you, you do what's called production artwork. And that means you do like a turnaround, like a front side, three quarter, three quarter back, back view so that the 3D modeler could model it. You might show um, if that character um, moves a certain way, you might show some gesture sheets, expression charts. You might show the character with a hat, you know, maybe a hat that he always wears on, then an off. Um, you, you might show like a state of the character, basically like almost nude and then with various costumes on depending on what you're doing. Um, and then you put all that together in what's called a model pack. And in that model pack, what I tell people is that the goal is, is to answer every question before it's answered. So there shouldn't be a question about, well, what does that look like from the back? Or what does he look like without the big cowl on? Like you want to answer all those questions in that model pack. That way, when you deliver it, they're like, okay, great we can go ahead and move this up the pipeline and get it built. So that's basically like what it is. And typically when you're working on an asset, um, it typically takes about, I would say about four to five days to get it to completion if you're only working on that asset. If it's a character, it may take a couple of weeks. Mm, gotcha. So talking numbers, if somebody were to do this, you know, working under a company, like what does a salary look like for a concept artist? And then if someone is working as a freelancer, a contractor, contract per basis, how much money can one make from this kind of career path? Um, you know, when you're, when you're a senior concept artist, you can make stupid money. Like um, um, you'll make well into the six figures as a, as a okay. concept artist. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that you talked about is dispelling the myth of the starving artist. Um, and that's the whole reason for this podcast, which I love the idea. You know, when I had saw 
your TikTok video about it, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. And so <laughs> that's why, you know, that that's why I was so excited to come on and talk about this because that is one of the most frustrating things is dealing with people who have this crazy idea that artists don't make any money. And yes, there may be certain type of artists, a certain type of artist who may struggle to become, you know, financially um, stable. But if you get into certain areas where you can monetize your art, like a graphic designer, like a, you know, maybe a web designer, a UI UX designer, mm -hmm. um, a concept artist, a 3D modeler, whatever that may be, you know, you can make a lot of money. And in fact, you know, as a concept artist, um, I mean, senior, that, that means maybe about five, four or five years in the industry, you're probably looking at somewhere like around 125, 130 at a, at a, decent studio you know um mm -hmm. when you're first starting out you may you may be definitely on the lower end like maybe around 70 75 you know but that doesn't last long because you might work at that at that rate for you know a year year and a half and then you move on to another gig and then they bump you and you're, you're now you're up to 85 and then you know you'll stay at that gig for maybe a year and then boom now you're in the 90s and before you know it you know you're getting courted by video game companies or whatever and you're making into the six figures and so um i can say with with uh the utmost confidence that i have absolutely zero regrets about my choice of profession <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i appreciate you sharing those insights now somebody who does it like as a freelancer or like per contract basis how does, I guess, pricing your services as a concept artist typically work or look like, or is that not even a thing? No, that's definitely a thing. I mean, um, I I do, so, you know, right now um, I'm a full-time college professor, but I do freelance concept art. So I have an agent, um, my agent goes out and finds me work. Um, I mm. have reg regular clients that I work for. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll negotiate with them depending on their budget. Um, I don't do a lot of commissions for um, individuals. Um, it just, you know, people don't want to pay a lot of money, um, a lot yeah. of for artwork, and I'm just not down with that. Um, but I have a lot of bigger, um, bigger clients that I work for off and on. Sometimes I won't take any work because I've got too many other things going on. Um, and then um, at other times, I'm like, okay, I'm down to make a bunch of extra money, so I'll take as much work as I can. Um, and um, but basically. Um, you could have somebody come at, come to you and say, you know, we, we want you to design three characters for, um, for this, um, animated pitch that we're getting ready to do at Nickelodeon. And, you know, you could negotiate and say, okay, well, I'll charge you per character. Um, and you could say something like, you know, I'll charge you $1,500 per character, or you could, uh, what I do is I either give them a, a, a rate per asset, or I give them a rate per uh per hour mm. so companies usually i would charge them per hour and i won't pick up a pencil for less than 75 dollars an hour you see um my skills are just i'm i i'm my that's my value you know um and yeah. you know um if somebody doesn't want to pay it then cool uh, then you're, we're not the right fit like you have to <laughs> value my skills in the same way that i do in order for us to work together period so if you want my services 75 dollars an hour you know, yeah. um, and, and the price is what the price is, you know, and exactly. And, um, 
you know, uh, but but if it comes to if they want to pay me for per asset, what I do is I say, okay, um, I'll design these three characters for fifteen hundred dollars each, um, or maybe two thousand dollars each, depending on the complexity of the design style and what what their ultimate sort of finished product is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell them, you know, you get X number of revisions. And after that, I will start charging you per revision, <laughs> X amount of dollars. It'll be yeah, as as you should. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because if you don't do that, and I learned this very early on, people will make endless revisions and you'll get to the point where you're like, look, dude, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, I can imagine too, being a concept artist, because it's you're creating a concept. Like this is like their beginning. And I'm sure they have so many ideas and they want to see so many things at different angles or wearing this or this color, this lighting, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Oh my gosh, dude. So you really have to do that for your own sanity. Have to put that cap on revisions because once people know that they're going to have to um, pay a whole bunch of money per additional revision, they'll usually wrap that thing up pretty quickly, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's basically how you would make, um, how you would make money as a, as a freelance artist. And there's a lot of work to be done for freelance artists. And the beauty of it is, is that, um, one of the, one of the good things about COVID is it helped people understand that not only can people work, uh, you know, can they telecommute and work from home, but they can actually be more efficient, um, Mm. so there's a lot more freelance work to go around for, um for concept artists these days and there were even three years ago wow that's cool I never I never had a concept artist on the show or really knew about that industry so I appreciate you sharing light and being transparent with the numbers because I mean you shared like $1,500 for a character somebody listening can hear that and be like wow I never like $1,500 like you know which is so like normal for you but it's like hearing actual numbers because a lot of artists don't talk about it can really inspire somebody to believe that they can pursue arts as their career. And this kind of goes into my next question where I can tell that education is something that you're very, very passionate about. Uh, You're a professor, you have been for the past 17 years. um, And you said you created the number one program for concept art in the US, which also ranked number three in the world, which is pretty cool. And you have, you know, a school for people to um, learn how to draw, learn the fundamentals. So where is this, where does this fire and passion behind, you know, educating people come from? um, And why is that so important to you? You know, um, (laughs) it it really goes back to um, my time in school. I, you know, I came from where I came from. You know, I was from the hood, from the streets, from the gutter, and I was trying to pull myself out of the gutter. And me going to school, I took it very seriously because I took it as an opportunity to um, to change my life and the trajectory of my life. And so I very much respected and admired my teachers because I looked at them as you're going to help me figure out how to do this. So these people in my mind were instrumental in helping me get out of the gutter, right? Get out of the hood. Mm-hmm. And so I always revered my professors. And when I would see a lot of these more privileged students, let's say, um, copying attitude, not taking critiques well, not accepting feedback, I couldn't understand it because I was like, man, these people are going to help me. Um, (laughs) So so I always had like a certain um, um, reverence 
toward my my professors um, and towards my instructors um, that maybe some other people didn't. And so it was always a dream of mine to go back and be that person to make a difference in people's lives because I really, you know, it's all for me, I'm all about happiness, about my own happiness, about doing things to help make other people happy. I just want to put good vibes and good energy out in the world. I, I have seen the dark side of life. Um, being out in the streets, I have seen it, uh, done it, or heard about it. Um, and I have seen some things that would make people's stomach turns. And so I just said, that's not for me. You know, um, I want to be a better person and I want to live a better life and I want to put better energy out into the world. And so I, I wanted to, I felt like being a, uh, an art professor was a way to give back. And so I was really, I was really excited about that. And I got the opportunity to become a part-time professor um, really just a couple of years after I'd gotten out of school. Um, and I started teaching some foundational classes. Um, and so I was very young when, um, I first became, I was in my 20s still when I first became a college professor. And I did that part-time and then I worked in the industry. Um, and then of course, you know, I, I, you know, I talked about my dream of working at Lucas. Well, I ended up working at Lucasfilm um, for, on, uh, for season three of a show called The Clone Wars for Lucasfilm Animation. That was sort of a highlight, but- That's awesome. Yeah, it was it was it was dope. Like it, it was it was like to have that dream, and then you know, ten years later to have the man signing your checks was kind of crazy. Um, and but at, but here's what happened: I got to that place, and I felt like, you know, I had reached the mountaintop, and it was fantastic. And and after I'd gotten there, I was like, okay, it's just a job. Like it's it's a dope job, and it's a dream job, but it's still just a job. And I began to wonder, like, how am I making a difference? Because that's ultimately what I love the most is making a difference. And um, I used to get invited to speak at the freshman orientation of the university that I was working at um, part time. And the speech that I gave um, just inspired so many people. And in my classes, I was able to inspire people and teach them and have an effect and to have people come back and say, you know, because of you. I was able to get this job in the industry and I'm so grateful for, for what you were able to do for me and your guidance and your mentorship. That really was so much more gratifying than working in studios, you know? I mean, seeing your name in the credits of a movie, you know, in the theaters is pretty darn cool, right? Seeing your name in the credits of a TV show is pretty darn cool, but how fast <laughs> those credits go by the screen, you know? Yeah. The gratification is fleeting. And so when it comes to, um, education, I was in a, I was in a position to really make a, a lifelong difference in people's lives for the better. And that to me was much more gratifying than just doing art in a studio. And I realized very quickly that I had a gift for teaching. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I was offered, uh, about 10 years ago, I was offered the opportunity to come back as a full-time professor. And when I came back to the um, to the university that I had uh, been teaching at part time, um, there was no concept art program. And so I built it from the ground up. I wrote every class from uh, for the BFA degree, for the MFA degree. I've written classes, wow. you know, for other degrees as well. I've probably written, I uh, authored about 
25 classes during my 10 years. Um, I've written just built systems and programs and wrote all the curriculum um, for various um, disciplines within concept art because I understood all of concept art because I was in concept art from the ground up. And so I could, I could, you know, write classes on, you know, environment design and prop design and character design and everything in between. And so I built that up. And by 2019, we were ranked the number one program in the country for three years running. And we hit number three in the world is where we peaked at on the world rankings. Um, and when I had first got on, you know, I told people, I'm going to build a, a school that is going to be bigger than Art Center, which was, uh, or, or a program that's going to be bigger than Art Center, which was at the time the creme de la creme. And people laughed at me. People laughed mm -hmm. at me because here is this obnoxious, you know, black guy, <laughs> you know, with his big mouth and his big dreams saying he's going to make a program that's going to be better than Art Center. Well, seven years later, that's what I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, I feel like if 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 your dreams don't piss regular people off, you're not dreaming big enough, you know. And um, you know, but what happened was I built this program into the number one program in the in in the country. It's been that for it's held a standing ever since we got it. So it's been three years running, um, and into a world class program. And I I didn't really get um the the acknowledgement that I deserve um mm -hmm. I didn't get the recognition that I deserve um in fact um not not by my direct you know um supervisor obviously they appreciate and respect what I've done but but I didn't feel like the school um respected and appreciated what I did and yeah. I realized it was because I did it for them Okay, so they're they're fine now. They got they have what they need. They don't really need me anymore. Okay, um, and not only that, they can go in and tinker and mess around with my curriculum and do whatever they want to the detriment of the program and the students. And I have nothing to say about it because it's not my school. And I don't, I don't really you know I have a very very specific philosophy about how I build classes on a macro and a micro level, and that's focus and repeat skill building and application and all these project-based classes where you come in and try to learn a skill through projects that doesn't work because schools have proven that time and time again and so why was my approach able to be so successful so quickly is because that's how you build skill skill building and and um, application focus and repeat and so what i realized was um if i wanted to do things you know, my way, do things the way unfettered, uh, un uninhibited, um, unbound by red tape and bureaucracy and things like that, I was eventually going to have to start my own program. And so that's where I made the decision to create my Grind Before Glory program, which you, you your audience can look up at grindbeforeglory.com. Um, and we're getting ready to launch June 13th. And what we're doing is we're, it's actually not a full concept art program per se, because there's a lot of really good schools that address concept art. Um, but what, what the schools are lacking, and including all these very expensive universities, is they're lacking um, really strong fundamentals. And so even though they over promise and, and under deliver and make people 
or, or, or they they make people feel like they're going to walk into that school and out of um, and and out of the school into Pixar or Disney or wherever they overpromise and underdeliver in the sense that they don't yeah. they don't really have strong foundations and that's what you need, you know. And so what these schools do is they take they take people's money and then they take their dreams. And when the when the student is in their fourth year or sometimes even once they've graduated, they're like, hey. I'm not good enough to compete at the professional level. How did I get through four years of school here? I've graduated and now I have really nothing to show for it. And now I'm, you know, weighed down with, you know, $150,000 in loans. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I've seen that happen time and time again. In Me fact, too. So, they, so you, you understand, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was, it, it bothered me so much that I said, you know what? I said, I I have to do this. I have to create this program because if I create this program, I can at least give people a fighting chance. I can give them that foundational level, which is really what's the most important part of a house. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if the foundation, right. If the roof goes bad, you can replace the roof. No problem. But if the foundation is bad, your house is done. You see? Um, so I, I, I said, you know what, let me start there. And so I, I grind before glory is an art fundamental skill building program where I will take people at a fraction of the cost. Unfortunately, I have to pay teachers and overhead and things like that. So I'm not going to be able to do things for free, although we do offer some scholarships and I'm hoping to get um, some some grants and some support from some large corporations here in Silicon Valley in California to be able to offer more scholarships. But um, but really, you know, we're doing it for a fr- and when I say a fraction, I mean a fraction of the cost of what these other schools are doing because our overhead is so low. We don't have a bunch of douchebags making $250,000, $300,000 a year in administrative roles, not doing really anything for the school other than juicing it, you know? Um, yeah. And- raising the tuition so what so what we're doing is we're providing a very low cost alternative so that people can build their skills and here's the thing some people can't afford to go to art school period so if they go to our program and then after that continue to either do self-teaching or maybe do some online um, classes in one of these online schools they can get to a professional level relatively cheaply in comparison to some of these art schools. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to remedy that issue, that problem and offer people an alternative to some of these art schools that are very expensive and oftentimes don't deliver on the promises that they make when they're trying to get the student in the door. Mm, That's awesome. I love how you found, you know, that big problem and created a really awesome solution that makes sense uh, to help as many people as possible. That's really, that's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, we feel, you know, I feel, uh, I feel really good about it. Um, I feel like, you know, like I said, I, I really love more than anything else to make a difference in people's lives, to help people, to use my gifts to help um, guide people, mentor people. Um, It's something that I'm very passionate about. And, you know, I just realized that um, if I was going to be able to do that at the highest level, it was going to be at some point time for me to break off and and build my own program so that I could do that without any sort of inhibitions, without any sort of um, blockades and, and having to justify my ideas. And to be frank, you know, if I do it this way, I can offer something greater 
and better, but at a far cheaper price. So right. let me let me do this because you know the the worst thing that I the worst thing that I that I see is when people, you know, they have this dream to become artists. They have no support. Their family, their parents are not for it. You know, um, you know, they have no real support, but they go ahead and they do it anyway. They take that risk and they go do it. And then they end up in one of these crummy art schools that have a good reputation, but crappy education. And then they pay all that money. They come out, they have nothing for sh to show for it. And they have to hear, I told you so for the rest of their lives. And that's not, mm -hmm. okay. but see a lot. Oh, I love that. You feel what I'm saying? But like a lot of yeah. these art schools, they don't care because they got your mm -hmm. money. What are you going to do? Sue them? And they're so expensive for no reason, too. Like, gosh, like I know so many artists that are in debt from art school um, and they didn't do anything or couldn't do anything with their education. But I also I have a theory of just like, you know, I feel like a lot of people, too, who go in these programs, they just kind of expect the talent and skills to be handed to them, but they didn't really put in the work or extra work outside of, you know, the curriculum towards what they're trying to pursue that's like a whole nother conversation but yeah I think that's I, I totally feel you on that and it's really amazing that you created this program that's that's for people to um to go on a more successful path and at a fraction of the cost I mean that just makes puts the cherry on top right there absolutely and and you know it's 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 funny because um you're right you know you're right there there are there are not all schools are bad. <laughs> um, I would say the vast majority of art schools are bad. <laughs> um, but uh, and that's unfortunate. But um, there are some good schools out there. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it really does require for somebody to come in there with the right mindset and the right attitude, because the world is full of talented, unsuccessful people, because they mm. like the drive, they lack the determination, the dedication, and the discipline to do whatever it takes to make it because success in any endeavor, and especially art, is consistent effort over time, not half-time effort, not sometime, not part-time. It's consistent effort over time, and if somebody is not willing to put in that effort, it doesn't matter where you're at. You're never going to make it, um, you know, but, <clears throat> you know, what What really, so, so you're right on that end, but what really kind of blew my mind was I had a young man whose godfather brought him to me when he was about 12 years old and so I had been mentoring this young man for about six years and I was always sort of uh understood that at a certain point he would come to train with me at the school that I was teaching at well his mom got in his ear uh and one of his teachers and and convinced him to go to um, a school on the East Coast, which was a very prominent school. In fact, it was considered the Harvard of art schools, okay? <laughs> now, I had this kid at a highly advanced level by 18 years old. This dude should have went in there, and after four years, he should have been writing his own ticket. Well, after four years, he graduated. He came out to visit me. I was shocked to see how low his skills were. He was at about the level that I would have somebody in my program at, at about after about two years. Um, wow. I, I was like, bro, like what did I, and this kid is a good kid, good kid, great attitude. One of the hardest working people I have ever come across. 
And for them to take that kid with all the skill that I had built up by age 18, with that attitude, he was a dream student, a model student. And for them to only be able to do that with him, I was shocked, I was dismayed, and I was furious. And I said, you know what? I said, that school stole from you. They stole from you because there's no reason why you should be at this level right now after four years. That's utterly ridiculous. If you had trained with me, I would have you at a pro, I probably would have had you at a pro level by year three. I said, now I, you got to come and, and do grad school with me. I can't help you otherwise. And um, he kicked and screamed, but he, he brought us behind out to San Francisco and uh, he went to grad school. And um, now he's worked for DreamWorks and is uh, on his way to work for Disney now. So all worked out. <laughs> that is so awesome. That is, that is great. And I, I think your story and everything that you've been able to accomplish in your career, as far as for yourself and for other creatives and artists definitely deserves a big hand clap. Um, and I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of this with the Gangstar Creative listeners to wrap it up. Are is there any um, last bit of parting advice that you would like to share and uh, also feel free to share any um, other exciting things that you may be working on or that the listeners can look forward to? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, um, for people, you know, follow your passion and the money will come. Don't worry about money at first. Worry about what you're passionate about, what makes you excited. Um, because you don't wanna marry somebody that you don't like, that you don't like to be around, that you don't find attractive, right? You don't wanna commit to somebody like that, right? You wanna commit to something, somebody that you're passionate about. Um, and even though in a marriage, it's not always going to be great, you're gonna have your ups and your downs, but for the most part, you're going to be generally happy that you committed to this person. Well, when you are approaching uh, a, a, an endeavor like a profession, it should be with the same mindset. You don't want to just settle for anything just because there's stability and you're going to get medical benefits. Like, what the hell is that? Why would you ever do that? Like, follow your passion and the money will come. Still get good enough. If you're passionate about something, you'll get good enough because you're stealing for success. Following your passion is going to be a lot higher than it would be if you just did something because it was stable and made good money. That's horse crap. You're, you're never going to reach your full potential as a person, as a human being, by just doing something for stability and settling. You're going to reach your full potential when you follow your passion because that passion will drive you much further and much higher than if you had not done that. And eventually, you're going to get good enough that somebody somewhere is going to pay you some money to do the thing that you love for a living. And then it's going to be like getting play, paid to play baseball. baseball. And, and, and when I see somebody like yourself, doing your badass paintings and murals and things like that, <laughs> you know, and getting paid probably very well to do it. Otherwise, I'm sure you wouldn't do it. Or maybe you would do it anyways. But I mean, I'm sure you don't mind uh, what you're doing when you get the checks, right? Neither do I. I feel like I'm still in when I get my checks because I would do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's when you know where you hit like art nirvana, where you are just happy doing what you're doing. You're getting paid to do it. 
Um, and, and in time, that'll come as long as you don't give up, as long as you don't listen to the negative voices in your head, the doubts in your head, the naysayers, the people who aren't supporting you. You got to block and eliminate as much of that out of your life as possible so that you can keep going down that path because it does take time. But with consistent effort over time, putting one foot in front of another, another you will reach your goal. So that's the biggest thing. The biggest like last parting piece of advice that I would say to somebody, and it doesn't just apply to art, you can apply that to literally anything in life. Um, and, and, and if you do that, you will make it. Um, so, you know, um, and as far as like um, things that I have going on, I, I have, man, I have a lot going on. Um, I have, um, not only do I have uh, Grind Before Glory, you can check it out at grindbeforeglory.com. Um, that program is launching on June, thir June thir 13th, and we have a, an 18-month program that we're launching um, that is very serious and very focused. Actually, it's so serious that we're interviewing people um, before they join because we don't want to just take people's money. We want to make sure that people have the right mindset to be in a program like that because it's very rigorous. Um, and so we don't want just anybody in there. We want a certain somebody with a certain attitude and it doesn't matter skill because it's sort of a foundational level thing um but uh but we're we're it's a very serious program we're launching that june 13th we're also um launching uh some summer programs for uh youth and we're going to be launching um some professional development programs for working artists as well that'll that'll launch sometime in the summer also with grind before glory so we got a lot of things going on with grind before glory i also have an art community that i created called drawholics anonymous drawholics anonymous and uh you can look that up at drawholicsanonymous.com it's free you can join it for free you don't have to pay anything um and what we do there is we do something called a 2500 challenge. That means that when somebody joins, they sign on and within one calendar year, they have to produce 1000 heads, 500 legs, 500 arms, 250 hands, 250 feet from the date that they signed that contract. And <laughs> many, it sounds crazy, but many people have done it. In fact, I've had people do it in three months. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it really... I mean, you talk about changing the trajectory of your skill to skill building. It's crazy how much it just puts, it just, you know, puts people's skill on steroids and it just really expedites their growth process. So um, it's a great community. You'll have uh, a, a chance to interact with people from all different levels, people who are just beginning to people who are halfway through to people who are in grad school, people who are professionals. They, they're all a part of Drawhawks Anonymous. It's an international community. We probably have about 700 people in the community all over the world and it's growing rapidly every day. So I would, I would recommend people to start there and maybe eventually make their way into Grind Before Glory if they're serious. I also have um, books. Um, you know, people can look uh, look up uh, a lot of my books on Gumroad, um, which are pretty reasonably priced, but you can check out my artwork there. They can check out my socials. I'm at Drawholic1124, at Drawholic1124 on Instagram, TikTok, uh, ArtStation, you name it. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's what I got going on and, and I'm hoping to keep grinding and do a lot more. I got new books coming, uh, for summer and fall. So yeah, I just, I'm just, I'm just a drawaholic, Devonna. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. Everybody listening, make sure you go follow him. I'll have all the links in the show notes. So you make sure you go check it out. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. And hopefully I can have you on again next time with some cool updates. Man, I would love to come on again. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, listen to a couple more episodes and share it with a fellow Gangstar creative. I would also be forever grateful if you left a review letting me know what you loved and what you'd like to hear more of. And as a thank you for leaving me a review, I'll gift you both my 10 ways to create a Gangstar brand PDF and five ways to boost your online sales PDFs. Just screenshot your review and DM me the picture on Instagram at Devonna Stimson and I'll send it right over to you. Until next time, cheers to annihilating the status quo of the starving artist.